continuing our Matthew series with Matthew 12, 22 through 32, which you can find on page 817 in the House Bibles in front of you. So if you are able, I would like to invite you to stand as I read from Matthew 12, 22 through 32, which you can find on page 817. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we have to gather together as a family, as a body, and hear from your word. I pray for Kevin as he goes to preach today, uh, just that you will be with him, that you will be with us to listen to the words that he has to say. In your name, amen. Well, I had to wear some black and gold today after a fun day of football yesterday, uh, but it's, it's basketball season, and that's my first love, um, really. Um, my oldest son is uh, playing intramural basketball, and he was telling me about a story the way uh, the game ended, um, where there's a really bad call, and, and he thinks it cost them the game, and it took me back to when officiating intramural basketball was one of my jobs in, in college. And I was doing pretty well at this. Um, I was getting pretty confident, in fact. Um, I grew up the game, around the game my whole life. Um, it was going well. I got asked to referee in the, the playoffs of the season. So I showed up, excited to be there. Things were going well. But I think I got a little bit uh, too confident. Um, I did. There, it was this game between this really energetic fraternity, and then a group of players from the Mizzou football team at the time. Really close game. At the end, um, one of the players, I think from the frat, came up to me and said, we've got a, a timeout left, right? And I said, without even thinking about it, you know, I had things under control. I said, yeah, you do. Well, a little bit later, again, really tight game. They call a timeout. And the other team says, they don't have a timeout. And so if you don't know basketball, when that happens, the team that calls a timeout gets a technical foul, you know, the other team gets free throws, the ball out of bounds, all that. So it was just this confrontation between these two teams, really angry, and I was in the middle of this. They had to call over the, the supervisor to try to sort it out, and believe it or not, they decided to resume the game the next day, and I wasn't on the invite list. It was bad. But do you ever fear that you'll make a, a really big mistake? Um, one that could truly ruin your life. Not something about some game, 
something serious. Maybe you get in a car accident and as a result, someone is badly hurt. Or maybe you feel like you, you, miss, you might miss out on Mr. or Mrs. Right and you end up alone or maybe miserable with someone else for your life. What about committing a really bad sin? Maybe you're sensitive to spiritual things and that's your big worry where your life goes really wrong and you harm someone, it damages them forever. Even worse, you do something so wicked that God turns his back on you, a sin that puts you beyond forgiveness. Do you ever worry about those types of things, about maybe those happening to you? I know many of us do. It doesn't help much, of course, when we get to passages like this. This stuff about the blasphemy against the Spirit, what's been called the unpardonable sin. A mistake will never bounce back from, a transgression that can never be forgiven. But let me, let me say it from the start. I think this is a passage that we so easily misunderstand, and we should really be concerned instead about something different altogether. So the, the Pharisees, they've been battling against Jesus. We, we saw them question him on how he taught and how he practiced the Sabbath. And the Lord gave, we saw, these teachers this really stern rebuke. Here they're questioning how Jesus is healing. And Christ responds and he explains what's really going on here. But then he throws in this phrase, watch out that you don't commit blasphemy against the Spirit. Now, we're heading that way, we're going to get there, but first we have to really understand what's going on in this narrative and how those words fit within what Christ is doing here. As we look at Matthew 12, verses 22 through 32, we're going to walk through four things this morning, what we see Jesus do, how we see people respond, how we hear Christ answer them, and then what our response must be. So let's jump in. First... See what Jesus does here. Verse 22 again. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So the Lord does what we've seen elsewhere in Matthew. He performs another healing. And this is one that's a pretty tough case, right? He can't see. He can't speak. So try to imagine how terrible and a troubling of a life that would be. But Jesus here shows the man compassion. He doesn't have to stop for this man. He could have passed quickly right on by, but he doesn't. He heals him. We're not sure here how with his words, with his touch, but he does. And this reminds us of our Lord's heart, of his compassion, but it also reminds us of his concern. He cares about our bodies, right? This isn't just some shell that we cast off one day. He cares about our suffering and our flesh. He'll, he'll one day take our pain away our bodies will one day be restored. As many of you know, I'm married to a nurse. We have an elder who's a doctor. We have many other doctors and nurses in our church. We have physical and occupational therapists, other kinds of medical professionals. And this reminds us of how important those vocations can be where we can, you can, give people a picture of Jesus of what he did back then, of what he'll one day fully do, and yeah, what at times he does even now today. But you might say, wait a second, Kev, here. The, the verse says that the man is a demon-oppressed man. 
That's why he's blind and mute. Isn't that what it says? Well, you might say, is that what your wife's doing over at University Hospital, exorcisms? Is every illness because of demons? Well, yes and no. What do I mean by that? Well, when the fall happened back in the beginning, as Adam and Eve, they got duped, they got sucked into Satan's ploy, sin entered into the world, and that affected everything. All of God's creation, including our bodies, and sickness and suffering flowed out of that fall. Now, with Satan, in some sense, called the ruler of this world, the the prince of the power of the air, all sin and all suffering, and that includes sickness, is demonic, yes. But do I think that every sickness is explained by the possession of, or here it says, the oppression of a demon? I don't think so. We We don't see that always in the Bible. We don't see that even always here in Matthew. So my nurse's main role, Amy's main role, isn't to do exorcisms. No, but should she pray for her patients and even with them if they ask? Yes, she does that all the time. Is all healing attributed ultimately to God? Of course. Does he, though, often use the means of medicines and physicians? Yes. But ponder how incredible and how joyous this has to be for this man. We can't even begin to comprehend how this turnaround had to feel. His body was probably in shock over this change, but also potentially his heart, right? And these miracles that we see through this book, through the gospels, are meant to point to a deeper reality also where he is meant and we're meant to see beyond the physical, to look at Jesus with faith, to behold, to believe. His mouth is opened for an even bigger reason to respond to who Jesus is with praise. Does he rise up and do that? We're not really sure. But what about the rest of the people gathered? No, instead of praise, they protest. So let's second see how the people respond. To this healing, to this exorcism, we see two responses, right? First, we see the words of the crowd, verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? At first glance, their reaction seems understandable, reasonable, maybe even admirable, but on closer reading, maybe not so much, because in the original language, it really has a tone more like this. It's more negative. It's more skeptical. This guy isn't the king we've been waiting for, is he? It's full of doubt, really, and that's what they mean when they call him the son of David. That's where the king the one that would rescue them would come from, from the line of that king. That was promised back in 2 Samuel 7, years and years before. They're astonished by what they see, but as we've been saying, as we've been going through Matthew, Jesus does not meet their expectations for a Messiah. He was supposed to rescue them from their enemies now. He was supposed to set up his kingdom there in Israel right then, So they say, can this be the son of David? And they look at each other, it can't be, right? Predictably, though, the response of the Pharisees is even much worse. What's that? This has to be of Satan. 
Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So what Jesus is doing here is astonishing. But again, he isn't talking or acting like what they expected at all. And really, it's because they haven't read and taught their Bibles nearly as well as they had thought. They think, it can't come from God. That's what they're, they're reasoning. So what's the alternative? It must be of Satan. That's what this Beelzebul title is all about. It comes from the Old Testament. Probably means something along the lines of the Lord of the Flies or the Lord of the Filth. Maybe it's tied. You can kind of see in the name to the, that old false god Baal or Baal from the Old Testament, from Canaan. But in the New Testament, it could really, literally be translated as the master of the house. Either way, it came to be this term, this slang term for the devil. And the Pharisees, they tell those around them, hey, he's not doing this by God's power, but through Satan. And that's maybe even more shocking than the healing, right? Because what could be more perverse than this? They're standing before God in the flesh, before this Messiah that they'd prayed for for so many years. They see him doing wonders right before their eyes, reversing the fall, bringing redemption again and again. And people ask, how does this guy do it? And what do they say? This can only be the devil. Wow, it's, it's only God's goodness that lightning didn't strike them right then and there or that the earth didn't open up and suck them right down? This is a reminder on one level to to keep close guard on our mouths and not get in the habit of trying to label the source of everything. You know, those, those TV evangelists that are quick to say that this or that is from God, or when others try to say that something clearly is from Satan, like maybe a revival that we see, for example, Discernment is needed, don't don't misunderstand me, but we have to be careful when we wade into those waters. We also tend to throw around labels so quickly today, and you know we cancel people at the drop of a hat. We're so skeptical, so cynical, so jaded, so negative, we see someone doing good, helping others, standing up for what's right, and we far too easily ask, but what else is going on here? you know, looking for a scandal. We think there's always more to the story. Is that person a human trafficker or a serial killer? Probably not, but is he or she a sinner? Definitely. We as Christians have to rise above the fray and have different things to say in conversations like this when we see goodness around us and not be so quick to judge and condemn, but especially when we're talking about what is or isn't from God. The crowds here are skeptical. They're doubtful Jesus is the king. The Pharisees, they go way beyond that. Last week, we looked at the verses before, this quote from Isaiah 42, and I called this to behold Jesus, to believe in him, but instead we see the people battling against him. They blaspheme. Their hearts are dark, but Jesus is about to shine the light on them. And Jesus sure knows how, right? Why is that? How is that? Verse 25 starts by saying, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, he's good, he's great, 
He knows our thoughts. He sees into our hearts. He knows how to draw them out to expose what's really going on inside. Third, then, hear Christ's answer to them. Jesus asks some questions. He offers some explanations, and then he shares some warnings. But first, the questions. Jesus here gives us a a good model of how to engage skeptics to answer critics. He asks questions. It's way less offensive to do it this way. Jesus doesn't call them idiots. He doesn't point out that they're inconsistent. He asks the Pharisees a couple of questions, things that they and the crowds can then answer in their heads. That usually works better. We first, though, see their idiocy through his first question, verses 25 and 26. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? A lot of words there, but I don't think it's too hard to understand what Jesus is saying. How is a kingdom or a city or a house that's divided going to survive and thrive? Internal strife will inevitably, invariably take it down. And Jesus says, if I'm working for Satan, but yet somehow I'm working against Satan by casting out these demons, how does that make any sense at all? Come on. Idiotic. We second see their inconsistency through the second question, verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So here's where he seems to be going. He asks how their sons, how they're doing this. If by sons, maybe he means Israelites they've taught their disciples. Maybe he means others of the Pharisees, their their peers. But the point's the same. Others that they endorsed, others that they recognized were casting out demons This was happening in Israel. We see it in the Bible, in Acts, for example. And Jesus says, is Satan using them too? Huh? I mean, let's be consistent, guys. Did they own these truths? It doesn't seem to be the case. But Jesus here is is graciously, graciously calling them out. He's giving them the opportunity to repent through these questions. And The questions seek to uncover their motives, to expose them for who they are. They're just making stuff up because they don't like Jesus. The Lord then offers some explanations. He lets them in on what's truly going on in his ministry. He says in verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus explains, if instead, if it's the Spirit doing this, then something amazing has happened, what they're trying to deny, the kingdom of God has come among them. He is the king. The kingdom is here. They need to bow to his reign. So yeah, Jesus is doing these miracles to show compassion, but they're also signs that the kingdom has come. They're snapshots of the perfect kingdom that would one day come in full where there would be no more sickness and no more suffering. The Lord also explains something else 
using another illustration, verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Last week I talked about my, my wife throwing some punches back in her pre-Christian days. If you didn't listen to that sermon, go back and check it out, at least for that. You can maybe ignore the rest, but Sometime later, after we were married, we were living over near Louisville, Kentucky, and I came home early from my seminary class, and I decided to surprise my wife, and boy, did I ever. I walk into the house, I look around, her, her car had been in the garage, but somehow I couldn't locate her. I began to turn and walk up the stairs when I looked, and I saw my wife with her fist drawn lunging down at me. She had just put our baby boy down for a nap, and Mama Bear was going to take me out. You should have seen the look on her face when she realized she was about to punch her husband. It was hilarious. <laughs> Thankfully, she caught herself, but I was beside myself. I, I was, what if I was an actual intruder? I mean, what is 9114 but that? She wouldn't have survived a stronger person, not me, certainly not a real bad guy. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, actually, I'm the master of the house, guys. Remember that term, what I said, Beelzebul? I'm here, he's no match for me, watch out. Jesus is saying, Satan has had some power in this world, but I'm here and I'm taking things over, I'm tying him up and I'm much stronger than him. There's a new sheriff in town. And that's what Jesus is showing as he does these healings. He's taking back what is rightfully his. So Christ here explains, he clarifies the significance of his works. But will they see it? It appears, no, they won't. He then shares some warnings with those teachers. He says in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So there's no neutrality with Jesus, right? You have to pick a side. You know, these, these moms that you see that um, have um, one team on one side of their jersey and another on the back, you know, the Kelsey mama or who, whomever, um, you can't do that with Jesus, right? You either draw near to him or you better get running because judgment comes for those who don't line up with Christ. Then we get to the words that tend to freak us all out. He gives this warning. It was neutrality, but here it's blasphemy. I'm going to read those again, and then we'll camp on these for a bit. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. For starters, what does the word blasphemy even mean? It's speaking poorly, it's talking slanderously, and here of God himself. It's giving him the opposite of the honor that he's due. So instead of blessing the Lord, you're cursing him. And that's a really scary thing to do, right? But it seems here there's this instance of this blasphemy that you cannot possibly come back from. 
Now, let me start by saying what I don't think this can mean. On the surface, I think it almost sounds like the Lord is saying this. You can be forgiven for a lot, for lots of sins, even blasphemy. You can talk poorly about the son, Jesus himself. You can be forgiven of that, but say something bad about the Holy Spirit of God and you're sunk. But can that really be what Jesus is telling us here? I don't think so. But what is it he wants us to hear? Well, some have said this is committing a really bad sin. Maybe murder, for example. Adultery, another. But again, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of David. That's what they call him here. David, his forefather, committed both of those things right. And the Lord has rescued and used so many other bad people like him, like us. Others have tried to teach that this is talking about suicide, that you'll never be forgiven for that, they try to say. But where do we get those, that from these verses here or anywhere in scripture for that matter? It's not there. Some have said you can't deny Jesus in the midst of persecution or there you've committed the sin, but what about Peter? He does that, right? He denies Jesus three times and later he goes on to be the, the main apostle. Paul was on the other end doing the persecution himself, putting Christians to death. He repented, he took the gospel to the Gentiles, but again, the point is, though, there, there's not a hint of that in this passage. Others have said, I think this is getting warmer, at least, but that this is talking about the rejection of the gospel itself. But again, those two guys did, they were forgiven, so have many others. We're talking about something more, I think, than unbelief here because that's where we all start out. It's easy for us to go back in that direction and we can repent and then believe. We can be forgiven. Our God is a forgiving God, is he not? We, we see that throughout the pages of Scripture. He'll forgive us for turning from the gospel, from the king and his kingdom, for saying bad things about his son. That's what he himself, Jesus, seems to be saying in verse 32. But what's this blasphemy of the spirit part? For that, you can never be forgiven. Not in this age, nor in the age to come. That means never, right? And we need to take this really seriously. Now, what do we see happening in this section right here? The Pharisees are looking at the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, and they're calling it, again, the work of Satan. Now, this is how I probably would have explained this previous years. What's this blasphemy against the Spirit? It's attributing what God is doing to Satan. It's attributing what God is doing to Satan. But the more I've studied it, I think it goes deeper, it goes further than that. So the Pharisees here, they're, they're standing before the one for whom they've waited, before beauty. They're standing there gazing on it themselves. The God who'd come to earth, who was beginning to redeem right before their eyes, and they had persistently, stubbornly refused and mocked Jesus, not just in this instance, over and over Instead of beholding him, believing in him, they'd battled against him, they'd blasphemed. Jesus, the Son, came to earth to accomplish our redemption. It's the Holy Spirit 
who applies that redemption to our souls, right? In the Bible, he convicts us of sin. He makes us born again. He renews us. By dismissing Jesus and resisting him repeatedly, we're fighting that spirit who works on our hearts. And our hearts are progressively, as we do, getting harder. They're getting colder. They're becoming calloused and bruised. And it's not just that we get beyond saving. We get to where we don't want that saving at all. And that's a state from which we can never recover. David Platt explains it like this. Blasphemy against the Spirit is unforgivable for this reason. There's this avenue to forgiveness. It's repentance. And you reject that road. So God's got nothing else for you. N.T. Wright explains it in a similar way. He says, you cut off the very channel along which forgiveness would come. He writes, once you declare that the only remaining bottle of water is poisoned, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. So I think this is a stubborn, persistent dismissal of the salvation found in Jesus, where we resist the Spirit's work in our hearts until there's no turning back. Hear how author Sam Storms explains it. He writes, this then was not a one-time momentary slip or inadvertent mistake in judgment. This was a persistent, lifelong rebellion in the face of inescapable and undeniable truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act committed only once in a moment of rage or rebellion, but a calloused attitude over time, a persistent defiance that hardens and calcifies the heart. The Pharisees had been present when Jesus healed the sick. They saw him perform miracles up close and personal. They witnessed him raise the dead. They watched with their eyes as skin infected with leprosy suddenly and decisively became smooth and whole. They had heard him teach with power and authority. They had watched his demons fled his presence as he set free those in bondage. They watched with their own eyes as he gave sight to the blind. Notwithstanding all this, they openly and persistently and angrily and arrogantly declared that he did it all by the power of the devil. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not just unbelief, the sort of unbelief or rejection or doubt that is so typical in our world. This is a defiance of what one knows beyond any shadow of a doubt to be true. It is not mere denial, but determined denial, not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. So like the Pharisees and the crowds here, we like to keep our options open and find some place of neutrality, but that place doesn't exist. And we end up choosing blasphemy, potentially. We reject the very source of our forgiveness, and there's no recovery from that, and that's why it's unforgivable. John Piper has illustrated it this way. He says, it's like you're this buzzard. You're chewing on a carcass, floating on a piece of ice down a river. You know it's dangerous. The falls are not too far ahead. You look at your wings, though, and you think, you can fly to safety at any time, so you keep on eating, you keep on feasting on that filth. But just before you're about to go over the falls, 
You stretch your wings to fly, and then you suddenly realize that your claws have been frozen and embedded in that ice, and you can't get away. Piper writes, the spirit of holiness has forsaken the arrogant sinner forever. The thought of this, for ourselves and for others around us, it should make us tremble, church. Well, a couple of questions that you might still have. How do I know if I blaspheme the spirit? Well, one thing I can say with a fair amount of confidence is that if you're concerned about that at all, you've not done it, right? Typically, it's the wrong people who are concerned about committing this sin. It's the people who couldn't care less. They're the ones who are in danger. So hear me, if your faith is weak, if your faith is trembling, that's not what we're talking about here. If you're, if you're battling for faith, not against faith, you're actually in a decent place. Another question, what if I think someone I know has committed this sin? I'd be careful with that, right? We don't know the heart. We certainly can't diagnose this by ourselves. You still might be confused about what that means if that's a concern, but I would just say keep sharing Jesus with them, keep calling them to repent and pray. That's what we, really all we can do. So fourth and finally, how should we respond to these words? First, rush to receiving and worshiping the work of God the Son. Rush to receiving and worshiping the work of God the Son. Don't delay. Don't try to keep your options open. You don't know if tomorrow they'll be alive and if the heart in your chest will be beating at all. And you don't know tomorrow if your heart will even want to consider Christ. So rush, receive, worship Jesus now, behold him, believe in him. If you're already a believer, keep doing the same. God will keep us in belief and praise. We believe the Bible teaches that. But the way he keeps us, the way that it looks like is us struggling to follow Jesus, trying to keep close to him. Second, beware of dismissing, resisting the work of God, the Spirit. Quit fighting against God. Drop the excuses, the defensive questions. Look at who he is and what he's done. Humble your heart. Fall down before him. Give him the worship he deserves again while you still can. Don't battle. Don't blaspheme. And believer, don't buy this lie that you're saved, that you can coast, that you're good, that you can do kind of whatever you want. You may be deceived and you may not even know him at all if that's the case. You may find yourselves turning from him and in doing that, proving that you were never a genuine disciple at all. So brothers and sisters, repent, receive, don't dismiss, don't resist the king and his kingdom lest you revile his spirit and find yourselves in ruin. Don't battle against him. Don't blaspheme his spirit. Behold the son in his glory. Believe. Next week, uh, we'll again be blessed by the preaching of, of J. Aaron Ferguson. 
he's gonna take us through the next five verses and he's gonna get to really the root of why the Pharisees are saying these things. But I wanna go back to those fears I started with this morning that, that you'll make this one big mistake, that you'll commit this one grave sin that will ruin your life, that'll send you to hell. Here's what I think our fear really needs to be. It's not that we'll take a step and we'll find ourselves falling, plunging straight off a cliff. It's rather more that we'll take step after step in the complete opposite direction of what is good, true, and beautiful, away from the Lord. And more than that, down a path that goes completely downhill, and we won't realize until it's way too late and there's no way we'll ever be able to climb back up. What's worse is that we'll never even want to. That's what we should worry about. But rather, there's even a better alternative than that. Now, when we hear Christ calling today, when you can see the light, um, when you can hear his voice, don't dismiss him. Don't resist him. Receive him now. Fall down before his glory. Don't fight the spirit. Rest in his grace and repent. The gospel is that he will take all of your mistakes, all of your sin. He's paid for them all on the cross. He'll give you his flawless, sinless life, and you can be free. The Father sees that. So run to him now. There may be no more tomorrow, yeah, we could die, but your heart may also grow cold and hard, and there may be no turning back. Behold, believe in God the Son. Don't battle, don't blaspheme God the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and Lord, thank you for even when it says um, hard things, hard to understand, but just hard to receive. Um, thank you, Lord. We know that that's your goodness um, just as much as the things that seem easier, that seem more positive. And Father, um, work in our hearts here, Lord. If there's anyone here that has been lashing back at you, if there's anyone that's, that's grown complacent and, and um, it's not desiring, caring about the things of you, um, will you grab, will you arrest that person and bring them back? And, but Father, I just pray that we would be people here that would see how beautiful and amazing you are. We would be drawn to that, that by your strength that we would cling to that and not let go. And um, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.